This is AMWA Diversity Dialogues, an interdisciplinary podcast designed to facilitate unfiltered conversations highlighting disparities in medicine and population health and what we can do about it. Thank you for joining us for another installment of AMWA's Diversity Dialogues. Today, we will be talking with uh, two physicians about important issues surrounding the LGBTQIA movement. Continuous efforts to control sexuality and gender expression usually coincides with efforts to limit and control reproductive rights. People with diverse sexual orientations, gender identities and expression, and sex characteristics have been continuously neglected in efforts to advance sexual and reproductive health. This has held back progress among wider populations and is due in part to pervasive stigma and discrimination, including from health workers. Here to shed some light on these current issues is firstly, Dr. Patricia Robertson. She is a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. She has been a lesbian health activist for many decades, from co-founding Lion Martin Health Services in San Francisco for lesbian, bisexual, and other women, to being on the board of Women in Medicine, an organization for lesbian, bisexual, and gender-expansive physicians. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Patricia Robertson. Thank you for having me. And today we are also joined by Dr. Laurel Waters. She is a pathologist who is an assistant clinical professor at UC Davis. She is a longtime AMWA member who has served in many roles, including being the current co-chair of the LGBTQIA task force in our section of diversity and inclusion. And she will be the president-elect next year. Thank you so much again, Dr. Waters, for joining us as well. Thank you for having me. All right. So let's get started. Um, Dr. Robertson, I'm, I'm interested in finding out more about, about what barriers there are for lesbians and other minority sexual women for reproducing. So there are many barriers on multiple levels. I think one of the first barriers is access to care. And this can be financial because we know our LGBT population has um, a level above the poverty level, the national poverty level at about 22% versus 16% uh, for the country. We also have barriers of having a bad experience in a medical office, maybe a look the wrong way or judgment expressed in a condescending tone of voice in terms of people not wanting to come back to care. So we have often delayed diagnoses and simply years of not having a pap smear for many lesbian women because of these barriers. Reproductive barriers include delayed planning for pregnancy. Studies show that lesbian and bisexual women wait until they're older to have their pregnancies and therefore there are more risk for birth defects, complicated pregnancies, pregnancy loss, etc. So that is also a barrier to achieving their intended family. Thank you. I'd like you um, to let us know about uh, what the situation is with in vitro fertilization. So in vitro fertilization is out of reach for many um, in the LGBT community based on cost. However, some folks are able to afford it and there have been a number of lesbian women in particular who are in a couple who have done something called co-IVF where they take the egg from one of the partners and mix it with sperm from a known or unknown donor. And then the other partner will carry the pregnancy. 
And in that way, both members of the couple have a biologic part of the reproductive process. One is the genetic donor with the egg, and one is the gestational mother who also participates. And there was a tiny study about 12 years ago that showed that there was less jealousy in lesbian couples when they did share in this manner, whereas the typical lesbian couple will have one person conceive, carry the pregnancy, and breastfeed and um, not share in that biologic experience. And this sometimes, until they find their own niche in being a identified mother with special characteristics and not competing with each other, uh, does show that it's a healthier environment. Great, thank you. Um, I've heard about an interesting court case happening in Philadelphia. Can you um, shed any light on that for us? Yes, that case is now with the Supreme Court and a decision should be coming out very soon. This is a demonstration of a barrier to having children referred for foster care from a city agency that discriminates against LGBT foster adoptive parents. So the question is, you know, really religious rights versus discrimination. The agency, in my understanding, has taken over the function for the city, but yet despite being funded by taxpayer dollars, they do not, would not allow a LGBT couple to foster a child. And so this is the basis of the case. We know a lot about the outcome of children raised in LGBT households. The outcomes are no different from those of children raised in heterosexually parented households. This work has been decades long because it used to be when a person came out in the middle of a marriage to a different sex partner, the person who came out would always lose custody. And that has slowly changed over the years to be more child-focused and equitable. So the children have been studied because of that bias for a long time, but the most recent study was in about 2018, where they looked at a large national survey and had the adolescents identify the parent sexual orientation and it verified what Dr. Nanette Gartrell had found for years in her smaller study of intended lesbian parents that the children actually have the same academic performance, the same amount of behavior problems, et cetera, than do children raised in heterosexually parented households. And there's a very interesting smaller study showing that at the Oakland Feminist Sperm Bank, they did some uh, small focus groups and found out that children who were raised in LGBT parented households actually participated more in terms of chores because they saw their parents divide them up 50-50, whereas boy children raised in heterosexually parented households where the dad did not participate equally in the chores actually um, tended as as a supervisor later in their careers do not have the orientation of being a team player as the kids raised in LGBT households. Uh, thank you. Yes, that it does seem that we are doing better with the children to a certain degree. Um, if I can add, yeah, I think it's very interesting how these studies that include children, you know, almost proves the point and also and, you know, and helps to negate the points of uh, the efforts that are against, you know, these, you know, the advancement of these reproductive rights. It, it almost proves that there is no basis in what these organizations are saying, because when you look at, you know, children who are, you know, a, a blank slate, you can see that there's no, you know, there's things just happen how they're supposed to happen, you know? And there's no, without the outside influence of what society 
has historically said sh- things should look like, you know, people are people. And that's and that's that. Yes, finally, we have a, a significant base of literature that's evidence based that we can say with certainty that children thrive in both types of households mm-hmm. and there should be no discrimination. Right. I think maybe we could, um, I know you know some about the different um, amount of intention in pregnancies between gay and straight um, parents. Yes, so we um, know that about 47% of pregnancies in the United States are unintended and about half of those continue and half of them are terminated. With LGBT people, very few unintended pregnancies, but they still happen. I'll give you a couple of examples. For years, a national youth survey has shown that unintended pregnancy in homosexual female youth is higher than in heterosexual female youth. And that didn't really make any sense. Was it that there's more alcohol involved and less contraceptive use? Was it that they were proving they could be straight and could have sex with men. It was really quite a mystery until this one paper that was published this year that looked at actually the type of contraception used by straight female youth versus questioning or bisexual youth and that the contraception that these straight kids were using were was much more effective. It was like IUDs or implants with hormones versus condoms, which are 80% effective, but they fail 20% of the time, or other methods. So finally, we're getting some insight into into why that statistic exists. The other um, way that unintended pregnancies happen in our community is through sexual assault. And we know that lesbian and bisexual women have about a four to five times increased risk of of sexual assault, whether it's in the home as a teenager or more likely in the community, whether this is related to um, alcohol use or situational, we don't know about that, but we do know that some sexual assaults result in pregnancy. Do you know anything about the um, process that we went through in California to um, get more access to reproductive health care? Well, the major case that really pushed everybody was probably about 10 years ago. It was a lesbian couple who were refused intrauterine insemination because one of the partners of the reproductive endocrine group that they had sought care from in an HMO wasn't comfortable ethically with helping a lesbian couple get pregnant. So they refused to offer them services despite the fact they're members of this HMO. They sued and it did go to the state Supreme Court. It took years um, and they did find um, access to pregnancy help from someone else and they had a couple of kids. But um, what the case was settled on was uh, Jesse Unruh principle in California that if you're going to have a business, which infertility is, and offer it to everybody, you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. So we're very lucky in California. We've been able to to have a a legal standard that other states may not have. The national organizations have come out, the American College of OBGYN and the Reproductive American Society of Reproductive Services, ASRM, in support of lesbian family building or anyone from our community building a family with children with equal access to the needs of reproduction and for the children. This was not an overnight deal. This took years and started actually with um, a pediatrician who really recognized that if a child had only one legal parent, 
if that parent got disabled and couldn't work, that child would often end up in poverty and that a two-parent household is much more stable for a child. And from that, the movement grew to support LGBT, the legalization of LGBT parents in a couple. And then, of course, we had same-sex marriage that passed five years ago that made a huge difference. However, each state has their own issues. And just this week, the Supreme Court declined to hear a case from Indiana, which tried to say that just because you're married to same-sex parents doesn't mean you get to put your name on the birth certificate of a baby. Really? And so the lower court judge decided against this discrimination okay. and the case went to the Supreme Court, which declined to hear the case. So that determined now the law in Indiana that if you're in a same-sex marriage, just as you are in a heterosexual marriage, you have to treat both married couples the same, right. which means that both members of the couple go on the birth certificate. Mm -hmm. So these are battles that are going to be continued for many, many years. But at least we now have, for the moment, gay marriage, and we can say that you need to treat heterosexual couples who are married the same as LGBT couples who are married. And this has implications in reproductive rights field. Right. Well, next I wanted to um, turn to the topic of adoption and just share a little story myself, um, which is that my wife um, has did adopt a child from China when she was with a prior partner. And when they were ready to go to China, they were getting ready to go to China. The um, adoption agency said that my wife couldn't go because she was a butch. She was more obviously lesbian wow. than her partner. And so her partner got to go. And this was always a... A problem in the relationship. Um, she, my wife, did not get a chance to see her very much. Now, um, her daughter's twenty-four and doing really well, and finally is able to see. You know, she, they've developed an adult-child relationship, and the, I and I've gotten to join in as a stepmom. Um, so I. I know something about the adoptions and I know her situation was that her parents were never known. Um, she was just left. And I have seen a movie though about Chinese girls that went, Chinese girls that were adopted by lesbian couples and they went looking for and found um, their parents which was, it was very exciting. But luckily uh, her daughter didn't want to do that since it would have been too difficult. And I don't know if you want to share anything about what you know about adoption. Sure, well, I went and looked up some statistics today from Lifelong Adoption Agency, which has a very interesting statistics. And one interesting statistic was that 21% of same-sex couples are raising adopted children versus 3% of differently sex married couples in our country. Now, of course, there are many less LGBT people in our country than heterosexual people in our country. So when you look at the numbers of the kids being raised, they're going to be, you know, outnumbered by those being raised by heterosexual parents. But um, it's always amazing to me how many LGBT couples have volunteered to adopt, to foster, um, and then some pursue having their own biologic children in many different constellations. But certainly um, the children of those homes have also been studied and have favorable outcomes compared to straight couples who are raising adopted children. Again, adding to the body of evidence that the outcomes of the children are the same. So what you refer to, I don't think is possible anymore now because my understanding is that the Chinese government got it that all these single mothers from the United States were often lesbians coming over to 
adopt what they now call the missing daughters of China. So many female children are aborted um, when they're able to see the sex of the fetus on ultrasound, but so many are also born and then abandoned on the roadside because the family has a strong preference for boys. And you're talking about in, in China? In China. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, there are many other countries, too, right. uh, that have a pre strong preference for males. And um, it was really an interesting experience for me when I was showing some Ph.D. nurses around, some from the Middle East, when we, we talk, we watch sometimes the responses of women to when, because we didn't need to know the sex of the baby before the birth. Okay, now we both mostly do. But some women, if it was a girl, they would have no emotional response. Um, but if it was a boy, you know, there was a lot of joy in the room. Wow. Now, a lot of people are finding out at 10 weeks of pregnancy, out of 40 weeks, that the sex of the child, I call it the gender of the child, because immediately people start gendering their child. They'll put a little pink bow on the ultrasound picture. They'll start planning the colors of the room based on the gender. Right. So it's very interesting, but other countries, for instance, India for, has long had a uh, sex ratio imbalance with many more girls being aborted. And here in the Bay Area, one of our medical students studied the South Asian community and found out the girls weren't getting vaccinated before they would go to India, that the boys got better medical care, that this bias shows up in many different ways in terms of child outcomes. So your original question was about, adop about adoption. Adoption is not such an easy journey. I have to say I have four nieces and nephews out of 10 who are adopted and they each have their, their own story. And especially for people who are older who put pregnancy off, which is typical for lesbian women because they have, they need time and they use time to kind of figure out who they are and what they're doing in terms of careers. They don't have the straight rapid trajectory that many straight young women might have. And it's harder to adopt when you're an older couple because a lot of these adoptions are either open adoptions or closed, but the young pregnant woman or the woman who has the unattended pregnancy chooses which parents she wants her child to go to and she'll often choose the younger couple mm -hmm. because they're more like her. Wow. So anyway, adoption is very much a part of a part of our community, as well as um, biologic children. I'm really amazed at that statistic you found about 21 percent of lesbians are parents. Lesbian LGBT is that lesbians or is that the whole LGBT? That's the whole community. Yes, because I would think lesbians would be more than the rest. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know that breakdown, but a lot of pictures they had on the site were men. Oh. You know. hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So um, what are some other ways that you um, see differences for LGBTQ people in healthcare? Well, we see many increased prevalences of mental health disorders. And we know it's not linked to the gay gene because we've had some great opportunities to study like the effect of gay marriage getting approved when states did it state by state. There were some really great screening surveys that were about mental health that gay people were involved in before their state decided to have same-sex marriage. And they compared those people in states with same-sex marriage and those people not in those states. And they found that if you were in a state um, without same-sex marriage, your like rate of generalized anxiety disorder was like really high versus those who had same-sex marriage. Same thing for depression and other morbidities. So I think choosing an environment where you're going to be is really critical for LGBT people. For instance, I was head of our medical student education program for a long time. And when I had LGBT medical students figuring out where they're gonna to go to residency and figuring out how to rank them, 
they often would do red versus blue state or a look at local policies or marriage because they're in that age group that, you know, we're possibly going to get married during residency or have a baby. And so intentionally choosing your community where there is better access to mental health services, to healthcare, less prejudice is very important. So we have increased risk of mental health disorders. For lesbian women, surprisingly, there's an increased risk of asthma. We don't know why. That's been corrected for smoking and obesity. We don't know so many things like what the risk of cancer is for LGBT people versus um, non-LGBT people. We know that theoretically, lesbian women are a little heavier than they usually don't have kids themselves. So that puts them in the high-risk category for endometrial and breast and ovarian cancer. We also know that they have a, about a 14% increase in cardiovascular disease incidence from some small studies. And a lot of this is because of access to care issues. Some hospitals actually have lists of LGBT-friendly physicians, like Kaiser maintains one, so that when an LGBT person is thinking about going in and finding a primary care provider, they'll either know that that physician is either LGBT themselves, if that's the question the hospital is asked, or has a little rainbow flag and is LGBT friendly, or has completed a competency course on LGBT health. Um, we're just now recognizing that you know gay men have certain higher prevalences of diseases. It was so always oriented to HIV medicine. And so that's a really early field that is now being developed. So we're, it's just, it's now emerging this data, but we do know, I mean, we don't even keep sexual orientation or gender identity on death certificates. So we don't know if the mortality rates are higher in our community compared to straight people. We do know that Couples live longer than single people. And we know that there's a significant number of elders in our community who live alone who are at increased risk versus living in a couple situation for dementia, for falls, etc. The um, insurance companies caught on to this many decades ago, and the disability insurance rates for couples are much less than if you're single. Mm -hmm. that is are they differentiating between if you're straight or gay or they're just well, doing I, I asked my here's the single I think it's mostly couples but I asked my insurance agent when I was in the middle of buying some disability insurance and he said oh it's well known that LGBT people they live longer if they're in relationships um, mm -hmm. so but I don't know if he had the statistics at his fingertips or whatever but because um, usually you know insurance companies don't talk about LGBT. Certainly, we know that companies that sell alcohol and cigarettes do because they've targeted the LGBT community to be at their health, not their health fairs, but to be at their pride events and all of this. And you have a much higher addiction rate in the LGBT community. And for women, you have more smoking, no matter whether it's the nurse's study or whether it's adolescent study, there's a higher risk of smoking. You would think then a higher risk of lung cancer, but no one's keeping those statistics. But we do now have early screening for people who smoked for a number of years and it's not being utilized um, as well as it should be in the LGBT community. When some of the radiologists measured how many CT scans, they're called low density helical CT scans, were being done for LGBT people versus heterosexual people, it should be at twice the rate because they smoke at twice the rate, but it was being done equally. So one of our biggest issues is like we comprise 15% of the population, but the amount of NIH funding for our health research is less than 1%. We have got to get more research going because that's how we're gonna find out how to live life to the maximum health-wise. Do you have any idea how how we could work on getting more funding that's done through Congress, right? Or is that done at the NIH level? It's done at the NIH level, so it's 
the heads it's of done the, at the NIH level. That's right. And I'm on the board of the Lesbian Health Fund, which helps to fund pilot projects in lesbian, bisexual, and trans women's health. And a few of our early grants went to people who primarily do um, research in lesbian and bisexual and trans women's health, but it's rare. And they go on to NIH grants because they're able to use the data they got from the pilot study to get them into that level. But even the Office of Minority Health, the NIH does not have that capacity or structure. We know that the National Institute of Health has now had two white papers on how underserved lesbians officially are and gay men. Um, I testified in front of the NIH hearings that they held around the country about the lack of funding for research. We know it's there, we've documented it, but nothing's being done about it that I'm aware of in a targeted way. When Suzanne Haynes was in the Office of Women's Health, I mean, they're not the NIH, but she was able to get some small research grants to study middle-aged lesbians, obesity, and impaired mobility. But that's like a drop in the bucket, a drop in the swimming pool. So we really need some major force to really get researchers to do it. You can't, you can make a career out of HIV research. You, you can't make a career out of research on lesbian and bisexual women. Um, so the people who are doing the research are doing it as volunteers. They're usually mid-career researchers and their research is just kind of a, a sidekick to what they do for a living and for promotion at universities. Yeah, we definitely need more research in the area. Can you explain why it is that lesbians might need abortions and how that works? Yes, for years, the people in the reproductive rights movement have not included abortion as a lesbian health issue, but it is to me, and there are several reasons for this. One is that we talked about unintended pregnancies and youth who are questioning or lesbian or bisexual women. But we also, with lesbian and bisexual women delaying childbearing, we have an increased risk of birth defects, whether they're chromosomal, associated with increasing maternal age, or birth defects that can occur from environmental causes or severe fetal growth restriction. And it's my position that women need to have choices. I know it's a very controversial topic, but um, lesbians need to own this abortion question also and not leave it to their straight sisters because it's just so important to have that option sometimes to save the mother's life. And I'm someone who was brought up in a Catholic household and Ms. Magazine was not allowed in the house because it had the word abortion. So I've had my own journey to becoming pro-choice but there's just no way that I can stand by and watch a 16-year-old die like I did when I was a medical student before Roe v. Wade when she came in with greenish skin, septic from a coat hanger abortion. That is unconscionable. So everyone needs to step up for women's choice, even lesbians. Right. And sometimes lesbians need it, too. Yes. And actually, you were telling me a terrible story before about South Africa. Yes. So um, one of the issues in health disparities in South Africa, despite them having a very pro-LGBT constitution, is that women who are perceived to be gendered differently from their natal sex undergo a significant amount of corrective rape that the men feel that if they just would have intercourse with the perceived lesbian or just differently gendered appearing female that they would correct all this and they would go back to being the proper feminine woman with the proper marriage to a man and raising children, which is their role. 
So about a third of women in South Africa have undergone corrective rape. And it's not reported because there's nothing that's done about it. But it's, it's a really terrible experience of sexual assault. It's not just in South Africa. The study was actually from four other countries next to South Africa or around in that area. Another um, area that's very interesting to look at is Korea. And there was a study out of South Korea about depression and suicidality and LGBT people there. Korea, or South Korea, has the highest suicide rate in the developed world. And so few LGBT people even come out to their parents there. Only like 10% come out to their dads and 22% out to their mothers. It's required military service for the men, and they have these crews that go in and try to round out the homosexuals, and they get, I don't know, disciplined in some way. So it's a very um, judgmental society to live in if you're LGBT. So many people are in the closet, and we know mental health-wise, being in the closet has a high cost. The LGBT people with the highest level of mental health are not closeted. Now, of course, many people are out on different levels. You may be out to your parents, to your friends, not at work, or whatever, or you may never declare yourself, but just live your life quietly. So, but coming out is a healthy thing to do, even if you endure stigma or discrimination, because you have less internalized homophobia. And that's what they measured in the South Korea study was um, internalized homophobia. Wow. Uh, there were some other countries that had some interesting stories too, weren't they? Right. For instance, in Israel, same scene that um, lesbian women do not access their primary care uh, provider as they should because of fear of judgment and homophobia. In England, high suicide rate among LGBT youth. So, and, and look at Poland right now. Poland has geographic areas roped off to be LGBT free. And I read a, an article about a, a couple, a lesbian couple, who um, one family is in this territory that's roped off and one isn't. And they're complex decision-making about whether to even go visit the one woman's family when they know that they could be you know, victimized by this geographic area. Right now, the EU is actually coming down on Poland in terms of if they're going to do this, they're not going to get as much funding. I don't, not privy to the exact uh, threat, but Hungary is now clamping down on LGBT. Russia, very, and Iran, really hostile to LGBT. And of course, our administration just cut off asylum. Hopefully, it's going to be a temporary order, but some LGBT people are able to come to the United States because of the threat to their lives if they stay in their own country. So it's really frightening when you look at what's going on across the world. And in our country, it's hard also, but it's harder in other countries. Mm -hmm. And we've made a ton of progress in the last 50 years. Uh, compared to much of the rest of the world. I mean, even in Canada, there's a study in Nova Scotia and the LGBT um, primary care patients had less access to care, but they found that with educating the providers, they actually were more likely to come in for care. And that's one of the problems right now. The LCME, which directs the curriculum of all the medical schools in the United States to cover the basic things have stated LGBT health is important, but so few people know about it. Faculty have not been trained to teach it. And so the students often end up trying to educate themselves and teach it, which is not appropriate. Um, so we need an effort to educate current faculty at medical schools and current providers in practice about LGBT health. This is very hard because we don't have great research on it. But we do now have some compared to 25 years ago when I started doing some of this work, lecturing to physicians about how to care for LGBT people. 
then, way back then, all I could say is, please be nice to your patients because they have felt so judged and they will come back to their screening tests if you can establish a positive relationship. Now I can give a um, didactic that looks at where the areas of vulnerability are, what should be the screening tests, but I still have a paucity of information compared to if I give a lecture on pregnancy and hypertension. So I'm hoping we'll see more progress. I was thinking the same thing that you mentioned, that um, as much as there is still so much progress to be had in, in the United States, that we are still you know, ahead of many other countries. And personally, I grew up in Jamaica where, you know, historically there was, you know, actual physical violence, you know, towards the LGBT community. Um, you know, people would live in in hiding. And even to this, you know, now there it's, you know, a little bit less, but there's still a lot of uh, physical violence that happens in, in a country like Jamaica, as well as other countries, you know? So it's, it's very interesting. And did you have any LGBT health teaching when you were in medical school? Um, no, no, I did not, no. Yeah, and that's something I was thinking about as you were speaking too, about, you know, how we can you know, start in medical school with, you know, future physicians on how to be sensitive to these conversations and not to turn away, you know, these pa these patients because, you know, that's going to, that's, that's a terrible thing to have in our healthcare system. Actually, you have an established program to teach professors at UCSF, right? Can you talk well, about we that? Well, no, we don't have anything that's that's consistent. We did a faculty development lecture that was actually oversubscribed to. That was five years ago. And in fact, our students this last year, we, we do have curriculum time. I mean, we fought for it and the students were the ones who were able to increase it. The only curriculum we used to have 15 years ago was like an hour on HIV by the chancellor taught by Mike Bishop, and then they got more, but maybe at six hours instead of one hour. But they were really upset because we do most of our teaching in small groups that so many of the faculty didn't even know that lobbied for only certain faculty who really know what they're doing to teach LGBT health, which is a very interesting evolution because they could recognize that um, that so many people are uncomfortable because these faculty did not get trained as medical students or as faculty or residents. Right. Um, but there are there are some when we need a a national speaker on LGBT health, there aren't that many. I go to actually Stony Brook. I've been twice and I did Zoom this last year with them. And they have, they, here they are coming across the country to San Francisco to get someone to talk to their senior medical students on LGBT health. That's not right. You know, we should have many more people who have competency in LGBT health. Dr. Robertson, I, I wanted to, to ask if there were any anything that you think we can do to further further the cause. And, you know, are there any groups that you think are of, of note for, you know, that are doing the work right now? Well, I think as medical students, you can talk to your deans of curriculum and say, we need LGBT health included in our curriculum. 15% mm -hmm. of our future patients are going to be under the umbrella. The most, the, the biggest group under the umbrella are actually bisexual men and women. Um, but still, that's a significant amount of the population that if they're not getting the proper information and interview training, it's such a lost opportunity. Right. Same thing for residency fellowship. But I also think that um, we should be getting it into our CME courses. Most physicians have to take a certain amount of CMEs to get their license renewed right. and to have that um, opportunity to 
hear about LGBT health is important. People often don't include LGBT people in minority health. And in fact, even at UCSF, we've had this issue that we would have a minority health research symposium, but unless your project in LGBT health included a significant racial minority, you couldn't have a poster at that session. So we had a, our session that afternoon instead. Um, but it, it makes people uncomfortable, but it, it, you have to work through discomfort as a physician. Right. Because you have a greater responsibility to society to have youth. Now, one of the things I want to mention is that we know that the increased substance use and smoking that happen in adolescent LGBT use can be mitigated. And there's a study in Canada and now one in the United States that shows if there are community events like the Pride Parade that have access to youth, their long-term risk for substance use and smoking goes down. And that's that's a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. So instead of ignoring the whole thing and trying to sweep it under the carpet, we need to celebrate the diversity in the middle schools, in the high schools, and of course in university and colleges, which often it is represented at that point. All right. Well, thank you. Those are some those are some good points and actual practical efforts that can can be taken to move forward. Our, uh, Dr. Waters, I wanted to ask you about any specific projects that you could highlight that AMWA is working on right now surrounding our LGBTQ uh, section. Well, actually, um, <clears throat> we celebrated Transgender um, Day of Remembrance, mm-hmm. November 20th, in conjunction with GLAMA. Uh, they, we wrote um, a statement for both organizations and got that out onto the websites and, and beyond. And then we did a film presentation of 5B, which is a film about the first HIV ward, which was on, San, which was in San Francisco General. Right. And that we we showed the film on Zoom as well as we had a panel of a physician and two nurses that were involved. One was in the film. And so that that uh, those are the events we've had recently. And then we're working on position papers and maybe Dr. Robertson, you can say a minute on what you're doing with the position paper. Right, so I'm writing a position paper with uh, two students on access to fertility services for the LGBT community. Okay. So right now I'm networking with um, different folks for their input and hopefully it'll be posted in the next six months to really underline that everybody needs to open up access for LGBT family building. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. All of those sound like very uh, current and pertinent projects that are happening. Um, are there any resources uh, that either of you would like to share, uh, you know, websites or articles that you might know or any organizations that we can check out to get more information? Women in Medicine is... Um, a group for started out as just being lesbians, but now it's all sexual minority women. And um, both Dr. Robertson and I are on the board. And that is something that is great if for LGBT, for, well, LGBT women to find out about. Um, there's a retreat annually and then there are some committees happening between retreats. Okay. There's also GLAMA, as I, as I mentioned, the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association. And that has expanded from being just physicians to being all healthcare providers. It's open to all and it's the whole spectrum. So it's a large organization. There's also a textbook I wrote for physicians, Lesbian Health 101, 
a guide for clinicians. And I want to mention um, two sources of good videos for training staff. One is Double uh, AMC and one is AMA. And so they have some wonderful short little videos on how to do interviews and not, you know, alienate LGBT patients by insensitive questions. And um, they're, they're short and fun to watch. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, I didn't even know that. Yes. There's also, um, Dr. Robertson mentioned the Lesbian Health Fund, and that's now, um, it started out out of Women in Medicine, which is also known as WIM, W-I-M. And and then it was too much, it, it required too much infrastructure and needed a bigger organization like LAMA. Okay. So, and then there's also uh, Lambda Legal is the um, group that does the legal fights for um, LGBTQIA women. So they need, so those last two things are for giving money if you have extra. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the National Center for Lesbian Rights. So they have a great website and they have, and the most recent excellent resource I would love to share is called the Williams Institute. It is a part of UCLA Law School, and it has like made such a difference. It gathers data about LGBT people. They have been cited multiple times in Supreme Court cases, despite the fact they're only about 10 years old. So people should check out the Williams Institute website okay. um, at UCLA. All right. Well, I'd like to thank you both so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to have this conversation. I have personally learned so much during this uh, less than an hour that we have been having this conversation. And I thank you so much, uh, Dr. Robertson, for for joining us. And thank you again, Dr. Waters, for facilitating this conversation. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Okay. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is about expanding your knowledge and expanding your awareness. And so I'm very grateful to Dr. Laurel Waters and Dr. Patricia Robertson for taking the time out of their busy schedules to educate us on some of the issues faced by the LGBTQ community, especially women's health and women's reproductive rights. There were a lot of resources mentioned in this podcast, and these will be added in the show notes. Uh, Just to mention a few, you need to check out groups such as Women in Medicine, GLAMA, the AAMC, and the AMA. They have videos for staffing, uh, staff training, uh, the Lesbian Health Fund, Lam- Lambda, and the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Also, check out the textbook mentioned, uh, Lesbian Health 101, a guide for physicians. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us next time. AMWA Diversity Dialogues is a podcast created by the Section of Diversity and Inclusion from the American Medical Women's Association. Thanks for tuning in.